Well, as Tim had shared prior to service and as we shared um, last uh, Sunday after service, there was uh, an outline that if you wanted was there on the back table. Um, now keep in mind that if you're, that, that outline just gives you a basic understanding of the seven churches as far as an actual church, a type of church and historically. So now that you have that outline, let me just share with you one thing tonight. We won't be looking at that outline at all. So, but you have an outline for it. Um, you do have that outline. What I'm, what I'm seeking to do and, and, and start praying even now because we're, we're looking at going through these churches and trying to figure out what they are in their context and as they go through the churches. Let me just share with you a couple of things about what it is that we're looking at. Jesus himself had made that statement there in chapter 1 um, where he said in verse 11, he said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Well, you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. He makes mention of these churches. And so as we see here, we know that in verse 12, now John turns there in chapter 1, sees the voice that spoke with him, and having turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. As he sees these seven golden lampstands, it declares there in verse 13 of chapter 1, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. Now in verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. He speaks of these seven churches, and, and of course we know we're going to be going through them in the same order that he proclaimed them. But I want you to, if you're a note taker, jot this down, because what he does is this. To every single church, to every one of these letters that we're going to see, there is simply an address to the church. He writes it to the church. Let me just share with you here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. So he's just simply addressing the church. He does that to every single one of them. He addresses the church. After he addresses the church, he lets them know who he is. Now, remember, we we, we made these notes before because what what... what what we see here is after he says, this is the church, he says, and this is me. This is who's writing this. This is who's declaring this. And as he reveals himself to the churches, what he's going to do is this. He's going to reveal himself as he's already revealed himself in chapter 1. He's not going to do anything different. He's already spoken who he was and how he was in chapter 1. We won't reveal it. We'll reveal it as we go through the churches here. But he says, first to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1. Right. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So now he just simply says who he was. But as he says who he was, he says the, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And, of course, we saw that there in, in verse um, 12 and 13. I turned to see the voice of him who spoke, and having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet. There in um, verse 16, in his right hand were seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So you see, he's already revealed himself in this way. 
So what he's going to do is this, and I'm going to bounce around for the initial part of this to show you the pattern. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to dive into the churches. So the first thing that he does is he addresses the church. Then he introduces himself as he already has been introduced and revealed there in chapter 1. Then he's going to make a statement. He's going to say, this is the condition of the church. And each church is going to have a different condition. And after he talks about this statement, this, like, this is where the church is at right here, he's then going to give a declaration. In some cases, he's going to give a verdict. He says, okay, here's where you are, here's where you're lacking, and this is what is going to be happening. He's going to give a decree that what he's going to do as, you know, in, in, uh, in declaring what they were, what kind of condition they were in. So good condition, good results, bad condition, bad results, middle conditions, middle results. And so he's going to do that. He's going to talk about here's the condition, and he's going to say, now here's the verdict according to the condition of the church. The next thing he's going to do is this. He's going to give a, a command um, to the church. He's going to simply say, this is what I'm going to tell you, the church. Along with his command that he gives to the church, after he says, here's your condition, here's the verdict concerning that, he's now going to say, but this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. So he's going to give a command to the church. Now, as he gives a command to the church, he then is going to branch out to every single church and give a, a general exhortation to all Christians. And we'll be looking at that because he's going to say to him um, who overcomes and, and, you know, so or he who has an ear, let him hear. Those are the things where no matter who you are as any kind of Christian, this is command who now goes to you. And so he gives this command to the church. He gives this exhortation to all Christians. And then what he does is he concludes with each church to give a promised reward. Now, I want to take you through the first um, few churches just to kind of see what we're talking about. There's an address to the church, an introduction of who he is, and then a statement that he's going to give in condition to the church. What we're going to see is this. Let's look at the Ephesus in um, Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, this is now to the church of Ephesus, these things says he, now he's now introducing himself, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. In verse 2 he says, I know your works. Now we're going to jump ahead to verse 8 to the church of Smyrna, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, addresses the church, these things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. We'll be looking at where that is in chapter 1 in a moment. So he addresses himself. I'm the first and the last was dead and came to life. And then he says in verse 9, I know your works. So you see how it's just a pattern that goes on. When he sees the church in Pergamos, he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So he begins to make that mention. Then in verse 13, I know your works. He goes to the church of Thyatira in verse 18, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, addressing the church. He says, these things says the Son of God, now introducing himself, who has uh, eyes like the flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Again, those are located in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And then he says in verse 19, I know your works. In chapter 3, where we see here, 
the, the church of Sardis, he begins, and to the angel of the church of Sardis write, again, addressing the church. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, addressing himself as he revealed himself in Revelation 1, verses 16 and verse 20, I know your works. He goes on now into the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, these things says he who is holy. So he addresses the church, he introduces himself, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Again, revealed himself as he did in Revelation 1.18. And then he says in verse 8, I know your works. Do you see how this is just a pattern going through? And lastly, of course, the church of Laodicea in verse 14 of Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these things says the amen. He introduces, addresses the church, introduces himself. He addresses himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, as he was revealed in Revelation 1.5. And then he says this, verse 15, I know your works. And so it's interesting to see that here, he is going to be doing, making two things. He's going to be, one, telling the, the church, here are the things that I want from you. This is a general command where you're going to see it always referred to as, in a sense, this promise of Jesus, where after he says, here's, here's your condition, here's your verdict, and here's what I'm going to talk to you to do. But the very end, he always gives this promise of reward. And you're going to see that in every single church. And I'm going to jump around just real quick. I'll just give you the verses if you want. You can just jot them down. But he makes this statement, which is, is uh, here in Revelation 2.7, after he says, To him who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's general to everyone. And then he says, to him who overcomes, I will give. Do you understand that? To him who overcomes, I will give. This is the promise. He now will say the same thing to the church of Smyrna. Um, as as he, he says in verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, general to all Christians. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, you see this promise that comes to the church. To the church of Pergamos, he does the same thing. In verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, general to everybody. And then he says to him who overcomes, I will give some of that hidden manna. Again, this beautiful promise that comes from him. To the church of Thyatira, which is interesting is this. In verse 26, he says to him who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So the blessing comes first in verse 26, and again, that general declaration to all Christians in verse 29, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we begin to see that there's a shift now. Once we get to that church, and of course to the church of Sardis, he basically does the exact same thing. In verse 5, he says of Revelation 3, to he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. So again, he overcomes, this is what I will do. And then of course in verse 6 he says to everyone, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Everyone should be paying attention to this, not just this church. Now, Church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Again, saying here's my promise. And then in verse 13, he who has an ear to hear 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, a general to everyone. And lastly, verse 21, where he talks about the church of Laodicea. Um, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father. And then verse 22, the general to all Christians, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So at this point, you're beginning to think, these letters aren't all that complicated. There's a basic format, a basic foundation of each of the churches. And once you get that, that format, you get that foundation, the letters themselves begin to make a little more sense. You're not just jumping all over the place. Now, the last time that we went through the book of Revelation, it took us almost two months to get through this, this chapter. We're going to do it at a lot quicker pace. Um, what we're going to see is this. Let's simply jump into it. As he says, Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. He introduces and addresses the church. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We already talked about that. Revelation 1, 12 through 13, 16 and verse 20. So he now talks himself of holding the seven stars who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is key. Don't lose what he's about to say. I'm going to share two other things for you because what happens is when he says he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, he's talking about his nearness to them. He's talking about intimacy with them. Now, as he's talking about, I'm here in your midst. In other words, I'm present with you. And as he talks about this nearness, he talks about this closeness, he talks about the intimacy, that's what he's referring to as he reveals himself there from Revelation 1. Now, if you keep that in mind, the closeness, the intimacy, I'm there in your midst. What we're going to see is this. I'm going to read through this church. I'm going to share just a couple of things here as we go through. He says in verse 2, I know your works. Your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You've found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So at this point, he goes to the church and he says, okay, you're doing fine for the most part. You have a lot of things that you're doing and you're doing that well and you're solid in all the things that you're doing. In verse two, he says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have this purity within you. You've tested those who say they are apostles and they're not, and you found them liars. In other words, you're there constantly going through, and if, if you're literally like the Bereans, you're, 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 those in Thessalonica, they were more noble-minded because the, um, they, they searched, the Bereans searched out the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And this is what this church would do. They would test those who say they are apostles, that they were sent out by God, and of course they were not. You found them to be liars. With everything they've done, in verse 3 now, they have persevered, they have patience, they have labored for my name's sake. Now, here's the key. They labored for his name's sake. In other words, for you, I will do this. For you, I will do this. For you, I will do this. And he says, I don't need you to do something for me. I want you to be with me. 
I want you to be in my midst. I'm there in your midst. I'm there with you. Why don't you want to be close to me? You're, you're doing all these things. You're saying all those things. You're doing the right things even, but you're not close to me. You do all these things for my name, but you're not doing it with me. You're not here with me. You're not intimate with me. And she says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And it's not about doing things for the Lord. It's about what? It's about you do it to the Lord. It's intimacy with the Lord. One of the first things that we learn about there in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 28, where he's, the, the Lord says this. Exodus 28, verse 1. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me. Not for me. I want him with me. I want him near me. First, you're going to separate him from all these things, and it's going to be me and him only. And I love that about the Lord, because what God doesn't want is a bunch of service. What he really wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants that closeness. And this is what was happening with the church. All the right things were being done, but here's the problem. They weren't done in the heart of intimacy. They weren't done in the heart where they say, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. And the real heart is, would you be with me? Would you be close to me? And I love the heart of this because this is where the, the church had an issue. And she says this, nevertheless, you've left your first love. You've left me. You're, you're doing all these other things, but you left me. You used to be with me. Remember when you were a Christian? What did you do for God? You did nothing. You prayed. You prayed, dear God, I am a sinner. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. And what does he do? He comes into your heart and you experience him. Intimacy, closeness. He's now there in the very midst of you. And as we're seeing this, he says, you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen when you left me he says this, repent and do the first works. Repent and return. Do the first works. Repent. Come back to what you do. Do the first thing. Be close to me. Fall in love with me. Be intimate with me. And he says, or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. If you don't want to be intimate with me, then I'm going to simply walk away from you. And that's a scary thing, because so often we say, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, and we do all these things for the Lord, but we're never, what, close, intimately with our very heart poured out to him. And these are things where, I'll tell you what, it's a scary thing, because when you're doing all the right things, when you're doing all the things, well, it's scriptural, I'm doing what I'm laboring, I'm patient, I'm not bearing with those who are evil, I've tested and found them liars, I persevered and I have patience. He said, you've done all the right things. But you're not with me. What good is all these things? I died for you. I died so that we could be close. Not to, to have labor done. I could have made anybody do the labor. I could have sent angels to do labor. I want you intimately with me. And he says in verse 5, Remember from where you've fallen. Repent, do the first works, or else I will come, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless it repent. If you don't want to be close, I'll move you off to the side. If you don't want to be close, I'll, I'll, I'll be far away from you. And he says this, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, 
understand this. They hate, he hates, they hate the deeds, which he hates, but he doesn't hate the doers. There's a difference between the sin and the sinner. And it's important to realize that. We're in Matthew 5, 44. He says what? You love your enemies. You don't hate your enemies. You might hate what they do, but you need to love your enemies. Now, the, the, the Nicolaitans, there's a lot of controversy to um, who they are and what they are. Um, there's, uh, um, I won't go into the controversy, but let me just share with you this. The Nicolaitans were a church who were compromised. Um, the Nicolaitans were those who literally, in, in their minds, were saying, let's have a new and improved way to do Christianity. In other words, you're, you're, you're going to compromise. You're going to simply say, um, I'm going to compromise with what the world has, and I'm going to just allow these things to come in. One of the very first compromises that we see um, as the children of Israel came into the new land was there in Joshua chapter 9. Don't turn there, jot it down. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 and 14 through 16. But in Joshua 9 verse 3, as I start reading it, you'll remember who we are and what, what we're talking about. But he says, the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, and they worked craftily. They went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkey and old wineskins torn and mended, and they patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their positions, provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, therefore, now therefore make a covenant with us. They said, we've come from so far. Would you make a covenant? Well, in chapter 14, then the men of Israel took some of the provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. It happened at the end of three days that they, after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Compromise, not going to the Lord, saying, Here, here's another way of doing things. Let's just settle this in. And this is what the Nicolaitans were. They were compromisers. And he says, you hate that. You hate the fact that you're compromised. Now, here's the thing. What they're hating is, is that, like, I hate the compromise. I hate what you're doing and how you're trying to twist it. But what, really what they're seeing is, like Roman says, the reason you see that so well is there's a part of you. You're seeing the compromise on the outward your problem is there's a compromise on the inward. You've left your first love. You're doing all the right things outwardly, but you miss it on the inwardly. And so he says in verse 7, he who has an ear to hear, after he gives this, this beautiful um, declaration to them where he said, okay, this is who you are. You've done all the right things, but you left your first love. And that was here, that verdict. This is what you're doing. Now he says in verse 5, remember and repent. Come back to the first works. Now, in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, general to all Christians, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, notice what he says. He quotes the tree of life. And, of course, we know that from Revelation um, 21 and Revelation 22. And so, um, like Revelation 22, verse 2, he talks about that tree of life. But he says, I will give to you from the tree of life. He says this, but what's in the midst of the paradise. Do you understand? He's back to the midst. 
back to closeness, back to intimacy, back to you're now close here. Not where you're moved far away, but you're right there in the midst. And he says, what I want is this. When you love me, when you're close to me, I will give you a place eternally close to me. And this is what God wants. And isn't that what we want? We say we want it, but then we get caught up with all the deeds and the deeds and the deeds. And it isn't about the deeds. It isn't about, you know, doing things for him. It's about drawing near to him. And now we, we move over to the church of Smyrna, where he says again, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, verse 8, right. So he addresses the church. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, Revelation 1, verse 11, and verse 17 and 18 simply declares that same thing. In Revelation 1, 11, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. So we see that that's that first part. In verse 17 and verse 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore, amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. I have the keys to the physical death. I have the keys to the spiritual death. And so he now uses this portion to reveal himself to the church of Smyrna. I am he who literally overcame death. And he says in verse 9, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of the Jews, the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but they're not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation 10 days, but be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So as he comes here, he says, I know your works once again, but what your works is this, and I find it interesting that their works were enduring hardships. That's what their works were. They weren't doing all these incredible things. They were just enduring hardships. It's amazing that there are all kinds of people who you know, look to other Christians. And sometimes we get to the point in our walks where, you know, I can do nothing for the Lord, but just cling to him. I, I, I can't get up. I can't serve him. I can't do, I'm, I'm just clinging to the Lord. And so there have been times where um, in my walk where I've either been sick and there was one point when I, when I came into this land, that there was a point where I was just devastated. I had no energies, no emotion, no anything. I, everything was just doom and gloom. And my wife and the church began to pray for me. And literally, there was nothing I could do. I could just lay there and cling to God. There was, there was I, I don't know why. I couldn't find hope. I couldn't find anything, but I could cling to God. And I love this because he says, sometimes that's enough. That's enough. If you're enduring a hardship, you don't have to go out and, and witness and, and read and pray and do all these things. You're enduring a hardship sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that's enough. Sometimes that's all we can do. And God isn't going to fault us knowing that's all we can do. And that's what happens here at the church of Smyrna. These things says the first and the last, he was dead and who came to life. I know these hardships you're going through. 
but I know that there's going to be life after that. I was dead. I came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, verse 9, but you're rich. You, you don't have a whole lot as far as stuff, but you have purity within you. You have intensity in you. And so you're rich. Now, I want you to just note this here. They're, they're, they're poor, but they're pure. And what we see is this. That it's that purity that's going to make them rich. Because he says, I know. I know where you are. I know your poverty. But you're rich. Now, compare this to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And I want you to see here the rich church that was really poor. He says in verse 16, So then because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Revelation 3.17, Because you say I am rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy food from me. So he goes and he says, Listen now, this church here in Sardis, you're poor. I know, you don't have a lot, but you are rich in me. And so he says, understand this, or I know who you are. And so as he says to Smyrna, verse 9 again of chapter 2, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. In other words, those who come in, but they're not of the Lord, they're of the enemy. And he says in verse 10, don't fear those things which you're about to suffer. You don't have to fear them. They, they are my will. You are going to go through them. But he says, do not fear them. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, if you are one who looks at commentators, you're going to find probably a billion and a half conservative um, different things to what these 10 days are. They, are they 10 Caesars? Are they, you know, 10 years? Are they, you know, and, and so there's listings of all kinds of things. And I'm thinking, are they just simply 10 days? It's just a limit of time. You will be in prison, but only a limited time. It won't last for long. It's just simply there, a limited time, no more. 10 days can simply literally be 10 days. The problem is no commentator says that. Like, no, 10 days are this. How about just 10 days? I like 10 days. You're just there. He says, you're, you're, it's going to be tribulation. You're going to have some suffering. But he says this, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, why does he say be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life? Well, remember what he said, how he said he was. Remember back in verse 8? These things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. So in the same way there with the church of Ephesus, he talks about intimacy. He then rebukes them because of their lack of intimacy. Here in the church of Smyrna, he says, I'm the one who conquered death. And he says, why? Why does he reveal himself in that way? Because you're about to suffer. Know this. Whatever you're about to go through, Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself to you in a way that will help you overcome first. Let me say that again. Whatever you're about to go through, Jesus Christ will reveal himself to you in a way that you can overcome, in a way that you can be drawn closer to him. And that's what he does here to the church of Smyrna. Now in verse 11, that general counsel now to all... Um, 
believers, this exhortation. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And of course, that second death is found in Revelation 20, verse you know, um, 14 and 15. But you're not going to be hurt by the second death. Why? Because I was dead, and behold, I now came to life. So as he reveals himself in that way, you know, back where he said in, in, in chapter 1, he says, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and last. I am, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. You have this same eternal life. So don't worry about that second death. It's not yours. That second death is what? Those who are caught up will be thrown into the lake of fire. That itself will be the second death. Where you died once, but then you're eternally now separated from God in that great white throne judgment. Now he goes to the to the church of Pergamos in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right, these things says he who has this sharp two-edged sword. Now, of course, this is a quote from Revelation 2 or 1.16. In Revelation 1.16, he had in his hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. He's the one who has these two-edged swords, the word of God out of his mouth, and, of course, he's going to have that through um, the, the sword itself physically at the end of the, the, um, the book of Revelation. But we see here, he says, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is what's going to divide between the bone and the marrow. Now, the reason he's going to say, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I'm going I'm to jump ahead a little bit in verse 16, because this is where that outcome comes from. Where he talks about, you, you got a problem in verse 15, those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But he says in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Do you see how what he does here, this command that he gives to the church as they're about to go through it. He says, I'm going to reveal to you who I am. Why? Because who I am is about to be manifested in your life. And this is what God is going to do. So, again, Revelation 2, 12, to the angel of church in Pergamos write, These things said, who, he who has a sharp, sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. Again, he comes in and says, this is the condition of the church. I know what you're doing. Where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So at this point where it's a, um, a bastion here of, of that, um, this, this church that is facing, um, it was married to power and it was had corruption. He says, now I know what's going on. There was a martyr among you. But verse 14, after he says, I know you hold fast to my name. I know you did not deny my faith, but I have a few things against you. So not just one, but he says, here I have a few things. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So at this point, we're seeing Balaam. Now, if you're familiar with Balaam found in the book of Numbers, I want to read to you just two passages in the book of Numbers, just so you can kind of grab a hold of who this Balaam is and really what the main issue that is there. I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 31. I'm going to read verse 8 and verses 15 and 16. It said this, 
Revelate or uh, um, Numbers um, 31, verse 8. And they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And then it says this, Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Why? Well, verse 15 and 16. And Moses said, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women have caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So although Balaam couldn't curse the children of Israel, every time he went to curse, he blessed. What he did do is this. When the king says, get out of here, he says, listen, I'll tell you what you can do. You can't curse Israel, but you can make Israel compromise and they will curse themselves. Bring in women. Allow them to intermingle. Allow them to be immoral. Have these women give themselves over to the children of Israel. And once they did that, God then judged the, the children of Israel. And that was the counsel of Balaam. And that's why it says here in Revelation 2.14, I have a few things against you because you hold, you have theirs, those who hold. Not everyone, but enough who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Then in other words, that you're able to compromise freely. Now, understand why he's saying that. Because in verse 15, he says, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Again, he says, which thing I also hate. Now, when it talks about here the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, remember what happened in verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Well, all of a sudden we see here that the church of Pergamos actually hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that there are those who are now moving, not those who hate the way they say, hey, let's do church new and improved, and there's a new way to worship and a new way to study. And really, let's just stick with what's, what's true there in the word. And so they're, they're now compromising these things. And so... What the Lord says in verse 15, I want to make a note of this before we go on. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Once again, he talks about a thing. I hate the sin. I hate their doctrine. I don't hate them. He hates the sin. He doesn't hate the sinners. Now, he does come to these people, to those who are compromising. And he makes this statement in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, I will allow my word to slay them. And that's what he's saying. He again now uses that whole term where he says, okay, this is, this is now where I'm making this um, verdict because of who you are. You as a church, those people need to repent. Now, I'm going to stop right here for just a second. I'm going to back up because there's a point that I, I kind of glossed over here in the very first church of the church of Ephesus. It's said in verse 5, remember therefore where you have fallen and repent. Just as a note for, for those of you that are now in this point here where he talks about again in this church, verse 16, um, he says, I want you, Pergamus, to repent as well. 
When John the Baptist first came on the scene, there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the very first thing he did is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus Christ, when he began his public ministry, there in Matthew 4, verse 17, the first words out of his mouth are what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they, they make this point. It's not just confession. It's repentance. It's not just identifying, say, yes, I did this, but now turn and agree with God. Turn and do something different. That's what true repentance is. It's not confession. It doesn't say confess. He says repent, turn from those things. So he lets the church know, repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now he says this general um, exhortation to all Christians, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, of course, his promise, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So he's going to give some of the hidden manna. And along with the hidden manna, he's going to give him um, a stone, and on the stone a new name. So keep in mind that what we're looking at is there is an, uh, a belief that within the high priest, he had these two stones. They were called the Urim and the Thummim. And so you would have a white stone and a black stone. And when he would ask the question of the Lord, he would reach into this little pouch and he would either get a white stone, which is in the affirmative, or a black stone, which is no, it's not the affirmative. And so we see here, he says, I'm going to give you the white stone. I'm going to give you the Urim, not the Thummim. I'm going to give you that positive understanding. And on that stone that I am for you, a new name that no one knows except him who receives it. So God is going to give us this new name. He's going to give us a new character. And that character comes through what? It comes through the word of God, sharpening us, dividing us, changing us to who we are. The very inside of who we are, cutting us asunder. And as he takes out the, you know, as a surgeon takes out the cancer, it begins to heal with his spirit and his word, and then we become new in our very character. And of course, understand this, as a Christian, when you repent and when you begin to change, no one really knows it right away. You know it. You know what God is doing. In time, others will see it. But this is something where no one really knows it except you. No one knows what's going on within your heart except you. But eventually time will tell and it'll become evident to all others. Now in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So now he talks to Thyatira. As he talks to Thyatira, um, as he addresses the church, he then introduces himself. These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Now, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. This is where he speaks of it. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So we noted here that within his eyes and within his feet, the eyes he's searching all things, and with his feet that, you know, the feet like fine brass, he's walked through the fire, he walks through the judgment, thus he's able to judge rightly, he's able to judge truthfully. Now, I'm going to jump down to verse 23 so you can see the results again 
as far as how he reveals himself, he will begin to now tell the church, okay, here's where I'm going to give you this verdict. Watch out. In verse 23, he declares this, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and heart, and I will give each one of you according to your works. Now, when he says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. This is the eyes that have a flame of fire. It searches everything. It it pierces into us. And then he says, after I'm searching the minds and the heart, I have these eyes of flame, and I will give each one of you according to your works. The judgment, the feet, he's walked through the fire. He's able to bring the judgment. And so that same way that he reveals himself, he says, I'm going to show you who I am. Before I manifest myself to you, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to come and I'm going to reveal myself in that way. So after he, you know, addresses the church in verse 18 to the church in Thyatira, he introduces himself as he's already done in chapter 1. These things says the Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Again, he makes a statement, the condition of the church, I know your works. But here he does something different in Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. He says, I know all the things that you're doing. And as you're going through this, your your love, your service, your faith, your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. So you're actually doing more things now as you're growing. Nevertheless, verse 20, where he says, okay, you're, you're doing these things, but here's still the condition. You got some problems here. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Jezebel. Now, you know who Jezebel is there in in, uh, 1 Kings um, in chapter um, 16, 28 through 33, Jezebel is introduced at the very end of her life with Jehud there in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 22 to 37, where he eventually says, hey, someone throw her down. And they throw her down. His horse tramples over. He goes and eats. And when they go and try to um, say, okay, go get her, bury her, the dogs have already munched on her. And so just fulfilling the prophecy. But that's what Jezebel is. Now keep in mind that as you see Jezebel, the Jezebel is the one who simply is the one who draws you away from what God has and sort of entices you and flatters you and and it it begins to take the place of who Christ is. But he says this, I have a few things against you, verse 20, because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat the things sacrificed to idols. That they begin to compromise what they're doing. And so they're, they're, they're going into idolatry, they're going into sexual morality, and you're going to see this going on more and more with the churches. And we see here in deed verse 22, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now again, we see here this whole understanding of repentance. Now what he does here is, as he makes reference to Jezebel. And we know that it's a Jezebel, the references there in the Old Testament. 
But he says in verse 21, and note this, mark this, underline this, highlight it or something. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. Not just I told her to repent, but I gave her time to repent. And then it says this, and she did not repent. I gave her time and she didn't. And then at the very end of verse 22, what does he say? And I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation unless they repent. He gave her time to repent and right now he's giving them time to repent. He's saying don't, don't repent. He says unless you repent, get ready, get ready. I'm giving you time. Come back and repent. And so we see here this, it's, it's too late for Jezebel but it's not too late for the rest. And I think, take this to the bank. It's not too late for you if you come to that place of repentance. And he says then, verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So what we see here is this. The spiritual children of Jezebel those who give themselves over to idols, those who give themselves over to sexual immorality, he says, you're not mine. I'm giving you over to death. But there's an actual point where they're her actual children. I want to read you just a, a portion of scripture here. Um, 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this to you. 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, and to the elders and those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses and fortified cities also and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's son to set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid. So all of a sudden he says, okay, you guys are all powerful people. Get ready. Here I come. Now they're terrified. And so what they do is in the middle of verse 5, they say, we are your servants. We will do what you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. We won't make any of Ahab's sons kings. So he wrote a second letter, verse 6, to them saying, if you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. So we see here in verse 11, so Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and all his priests until he left none of them remaining. And then, of course, he goes and takes out Jezebel. But this is what happens when God says all of her children will die. Yes, it happened physically to Jezebel, but it also is going to happen spiritually to her children as well. And what he says is this in verse 20, I'm going to kill her children with death because I am he who searches. I'm the one who has these eyes like the flame of fire. I search the minds and the hearts. And of course, I have these feet of fine brass and I will judge Give each one according to your works, not what you say, what you actually do. Now in verse 24, now I say to you and to the rest of Thyatira, as many who do not have this doctrine 
and have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. You who are suffering through this, you don't have to do any more. You've suffered enough. I'm going to put on you no other burden. Verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. Although I'm not going to pile anything else on top of you, you have to cling to me. You have to cling to this until I come. And verse 26, the promise, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. So at this point, those who are suffering under these people who are there with Jezebel and the compromise that is happening with the church. He says, if you choose not to compromise, you being faithful in the little things, I will give you greater things. And so we see here, he who overcomes, I will give power over the nations. He, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessel. Again, a quote from Psalm 2, verse 9, speaking of this is God, Jesus, who's going to rule them with a rod of iron. That happens in the millennium. As also I have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. So he's going to give them this incredible, that, that first light. He says, I'm going to give to you that beauty of the light that's there, the, the star, the morning star. Now, he makes this general to all people. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He gives a general to all. Overcome, hold fast, you know, um, and when, if, you're, if you're holding fast, he says, I'm not going to pile things on, it's enough. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, I know your works, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So at this point, he introduces himself or addresses the church. Here we are in the church of Sardis. Then he reveals who he is, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, we've already read that Revelation um, 16 and Revelation 20. So he has this, and Revelation 4 is the seven spirits that we talked about too. He says, and I, I know your works, you have a name that you are alive, he said, but you are dead. I want you to know that there is a difference between what a church does and what a church is. And the same thing holds true as a Christian. There's a difference to what a Christian does and who a Christian is. Are you in Christ? That's who I am. I'm in Christ I'm his. That's who I am, not what I do. You can do a whole lot of things, but here he says, you have this name that you're alive. You have all these things that you're doing, but you are dead. And you have to understand that Jesus Christ is not deceived by what this church does. Jesus Christ is not deceived by what a Christian does. He sees through all that. Nothing is hidden from him. And this is why we see here, he has the seven spirits of God. He, he has literally, he's able to take the spirit of God, see all things. And with this, he has the seven stars. He's in control of the church. I have the church in my hand. I know what the church is. You're not deceiving me. You can do all these things, but it's not what you do. It's who you are. And this is just a beautiful thing where he says, you have this name. Everyone thinks you're doing good. The problem is you're not. 
There's an area of you that's dead. He says in verse 2, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. I love the fact that what he does is this. When he says, listen, you're not who you say you are, but there's hope. Because I'm still there, and this, this little flax, the smoldering flax, I won't quench it. A broken reed, I will not, the, the, you know, the bruised reed, I will not break it. I'm going to always seek to build you up from whatever little bit remains. And so he says, listen, be watchful. Look and see. Strengthen the things that remain. See what is true. Build on that. In other words, what God is saying, I'm wiping out everything that you built up on the sand. Now come back to the solid foundation, that thing. And you only have just this little tiny foundation. Build on that. You have this massive edifice there on the sand. That's all collapsed. You had just, you know, a little four-cornered foundation on a floor. That's it. Let's build on this. That was on the rock. You didn't have much, but what's on the sand has been wiped out. What's on the rock begin to build. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. You did these things, but you weren't mine. Now, verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Notice he doesn't say, remember now what you have received and heard. He said, how did you hear it? How did you do it? Faith. How are you going to get back to where you are? Faith. The enemy wants to crush you and said, there's no hope for you. God says, yes, there is. Whatever is there, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain. The little tiny foundation I could build on that. Because your works weren't perfect. They were on the sand. They had to fall down. Remember how, not what you have received, Remember how you have received and heard. Hold fast and again repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And you have a few names even in Sardis that have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now here, this beautiful thing that we begin to see, why he says, there are some in Sardis, they've not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. This here is what he's saying. I have the seven spirits and I have the seven stars. You're going to walk with me. I have you. I have the seven stars. That's who I am. You're going to walk with me. I have the spirit. And so with this, you've not defiled your garments. I know you. I see you. You're going to walk with me in white. Why? Because you're worthy. And I want you to understand that what we're seeing here is this. They're not worthy because of what they do. They're worthy because of who they are. <laughs> this is beautiful, saints. Understand where the true wealth comes in. You have, they, they've not defiled their garments. They're not doing all these things. They're just staying true to what the Lord has called them to be. And he says, and you're going to walk with me because you are worthy. So he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he gives him this beautiful promise where he says, you're worthy. And he who overcomes, this is that promise now, he who overcomes, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. You're, you're eternally secure. But I will confess his name before my father and before um, 
his angels. Now, why does he say that? There's a passage, if you're not familiar with it, eventually um, it's just a great tool. It was a tool that was used by an evangelist to get me to turn my heart over to Christ. But it's a passage found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and verse 33, where the Lord speaking declares this, Therefore, whoever confesses me before my men, or before men, I will confess them before my Father, who is in heaven, and whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If you confess the Lord before men, he will confess you. If you deny the Lord before men, he will deny you. And, and I realized when that evangelist had said that, I never confessed Jesus before men. I would never done it. So I went forward and I prayed and said, I'm letting all the world know I'm asking Jesus Christ, come into my Lord, come into my heart, be my Lord, be my Savior. I made that confession. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going to confess his name before my Father. You've confessed me. You've walked with me. I'm confessing you. So understand this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, to the church of Philadelphia, once again, he addresses the church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. He introduces himself. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. In Revelation 1, verse 18, let me just read it to you. He says this, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore, and behold, I have the keys of Hades and death. He has the keys of David, and this is where he says, I have the keys. I open and no one shuts, and I shut and no one opens. So he, he lets us know that I'm the one who's going to shut the doors so that, that you know, no one can take you from my hand. And I love the heart of that with what we see. Um, I want to take you down to verse 12 so you can understand how he reveals himself, comes into this church. The church of Philadelphia there in Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, holy and true. And he shall go out no more. See, in other words, no one's going to, there's going to be no opening. I open and I shut where no one opens. This is who I am. I have the keys. I'm the one who gives access. I'm the one who prevents access. And so this is how he reveals himself in verse 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David and who opens and, and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. He says in verse 8, I know your works. Statement of the condition of the church. See, I've set before you an open door. Now he's talked about here, I have the keys. I've set before you an open door. I open and no one can shut it. He says, I, I set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. I love what the Lord said. He says, you don't have to knock the doors down. And this is a, a really good word for those of us that say, you know what? Here's the will of God. Let's plow ahead. He says, no, listen. You don't have to have that kind of strength because if you think you can do it without me, you're, you're, you can do nothing. But when you realize I just have a little strength and it's going to be his power, his enabling me to do this. He says, you have a little strength. You don't have enough strength to open the door. I've opened it for you. But you do have enough strength to do what? To walk through. 
Understand what he's saying. You don't even have enough strength to open the door. You only have enough strength to walk through. And he says, I set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. I love it as he's talking about this church in Philadelphia. He says, listen, I've opened a door. You have kept my word. You've not denied my name, my character. Indeed, verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have, you kept, you have kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a beautiful passage, and I want to not spend a lot of time here, but I do want to stress it. So if you've been tuning out for the last couple of churches, tune back in here, because this is key. He says in verse 10, and this is now the rapture. You have to understand what he's saying. This is, he's writing to the churches but what he tells the church here of Philadelphia, and if you're familiar with the, the, um, the, the church of Philadelphia, it's the age of missions, and it's that church that has revival. But he makes this statement, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So we see here, that before God is going to come and, and, and judge sin, there's going to be this beautiful call you know, to John say, hey, come up and see, come up and worship, and then I'm going to judge the world. But you need to come up and see here first. And so I love what God does through John as he does that. But he says, I'm going to take you out from this time of trial. You will not have to go through this. And in verse 11, he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, again, this, this area where he talks about, um, this is my promise to you. If, if you overcome, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This pillar means that you are going to be this, this something that is going to be immovable in the temple. And that's why he says, listen, no one is going to remove you. No one, once I shut the door, is going to take you out of my presence. You are going to be this pillar in the temple of my God. That pillar is, is a reference, if you want to, where he says in verse 7, he who is holy and he who is true. It's holy and true. It's a purifying. You're now this temple, a permanent fixture in the temple of God, purified, holy, and he says this, and he shall make the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. In other words, that no one else, once he shuts it, no one else can open it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And so we see here, he's going to write on him, he who is holy, he who is true. He's going to write down his name. And so this beautiful thing that he's going to do, and then after that promise where he says in verse 12, he who comes, I will make him. Verse 13 says now to all Christians, this general um, exhortation, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is now you and I walk. Now, 
the last church, church of Laodicea in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so we see here that this is that point where I want to take you to Revelation 1.5 because this is the word that he reveals himself. In Revelation 1.5, it opens up, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. So we see here he's the faithful and true witness as he's revealed. He's the beginning of the creation of God. He's the source of it. He's the origin of the creation. And so within this now, after he reveals himself in verse 15, he says, I know your works. Again, I know your works, the statement of what's the condition of the church. And he says this, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. He said, I know where you're at. And where you're at is this, you're milk toast right in the middle. You're this spongy, little, lukewarm. He says, so then, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, there's, there's three types of coffee. There's hot coffee, there's iced coffee, and there's vomit coffee. And so we, we see here that, you know, it's that lukewarm stuff where that coffee is like not really hot, but it's not really cold. And you're like, I got to just heat up. You ever tell someone to heat up my coffee, just enough to heat it up. And so that it, it goes beyond the lukewarm. So it gets into the hot range. Um, but he says this, he says, you're lukewarm. Now the, the issue is you're either on fire for God or you're totally against God or else you're what? Ah, yeah, me and God, we're okay. Are you on fire for him? See, God said, I would rather have you be totally against me or totally for me than to be kind of for me. Because he who's lukewarm, he says, you're, you're kind of inoculated. They can tell you about the gospel. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I heard that. Me and God, we're okay. And you have all these things that, that, that you're there. But he says, you're not hot. And because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, in verse 17, because you say, I am rich, and I become wealthy, and here's the church thinking they have it all. And they have it all, and because they are rich, they're, they're no longer like the poor church, or no longer like Smyrna, where they're saying, oh my goodness, I have nothing, but God's going to give me everything. This church, they have everything. And in verse 17, because you say, I'm rich, and I become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's important to realize that here's a church that thinks that they have it all. And the danger being is this. There's a portion of scripture in the gospel of Mark, verse 23 of chapter 10. Mark 10, 23, Jesus looked and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't say it's impossible for those who have riches. And I've known those who have riches that I know they're going to be in the kingdom because the riches don't rule them. They rule their riches. But there are those who, when you have so much, you don't have to rely on God. You don't have to ask God for your daily bread. Why? I got enough bread to spare and I got enough money in the bank to go buy it. I don't have to look to God to, to supply my needs because I have all my needs supplied already. And when you're at that point, you're not looking to God to say, God, I need you. You're thinking, I don't need God. I have everything I need. God, I, you know, I can, I can hang out with you, 
but I don't need you for anything. I'm okay. The problem is, is that they're looking at their outward. God says, you need me on the inward. You need to be close to me. You need to be intimate. You need me. You need to be on fire. Have your heart burning for me. In a sense, come back to that first love. But he says, you don't know that you are a wretched, miserable, bore, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you, he says, buy to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. He says, don't, don't buy what the world has to offer. Buy from me. There's a statement in the um, book of Isaiah, chapter 55. I want to read the first two verses. But he says, ho, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. God says, I have so much to offer you, more than the world does. What the world offers you is chaff. I'm offering you that which is rich. He says, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments. He says, I want you to come to me and let me provide for you those things that are going to be rewards. Don't let the world do it. Don't let your own life do it. He says that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. So he says, if you come to me, I'll give you the gold, I'll give you the clothes, I'll open your eyes. As many as I love, now notice this, he's now talking about intimacy with them. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Notice what he's saying to all these churches. You gotta repent, you gotta repent, you gotta turn. You can't just confess as I love you, I will rebuke you. I will chasten you. Your job is to be excited. In other words, be hot. Not cold. Not lukewarm. Like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll repent. No, 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 no. No, get hot and repent. Get excited. Lord, I, I want to, with everything I am, I want to repent. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous for God and where he is. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So he stands at the door and knocks. And he says, If anyone will hear my voice, open the door, I'm going to come in and I'm going to dine with him. And it says, Why? Because I'm the creation of all things. I'm the one that, that has it all together. And we see here, he says, and Behold, I send at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with me, dine with him and he with me. He is the faithful and true witness. You come to him, you say, you knock at the door, I will let you in. You speak to me, you come in, you dine with me. And then it says this in verse 21, where he gives them this, of course, this promise to him who overcomes. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It declares himself that he's the amen. He is, and that term simply means so be it. I don't know if you knew that, but when you say amen, it means so be it. And it's a beautiful term, actually. 
And so I want you to just maybe make a note here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it makes this statement, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God. Um, it's so be it. Every promise that he has, you know, of God is for us and for us. And he says, as many as overcome, I will grant, verse 21 of Revelation 3, to sit down with my father on his throne, that you will have a place of, of um, confidence, a place that's secure, a place of authority, and a place of what? Nearness to God. And that's where he begins the churches and ends the churches. And I want you to see here again in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you realize where you are? Right next to God. Basically, almost on his lap. You're sitting on my throne. But I'm calling you to come and to be here in intimacy with me. And he who has an ear to hear again, this general um, exhortation to all Christians, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So be it. Amen. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for just this word. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us and bringing us through an understanding of these churches. Lord, we, we cruise through them. We, we did go through the, the, the meat of them. And Father, I know that there are maybe questions that people have. And if they're there, um, Father, we went in depth um, the last time. There's, there's uh, probably eight hours that they can listen to if they really want to um, and grow deeper. And there, there's a good thing. But Father, here we thank you for what you've shown us. That there's a, a real key to these churches. And so often when we go and we take weeks in getting through them, we, we miss the meat. We miss the connection. Thank you, Lord, for showing us tonight this connection. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of God that I didn't wander my thoughts and we were able to get through these. You are so good, Lord. We want to do one thing. We want to draw near to you. We want to draw close to you in intimacy. We want to be real in that way. And so, Father, do the work. Knit us to your heart, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.